Good morning. Last night we had a huge rainstorm here. Today the sun's shining. It's back to the way that it's supposed to be. Thanks for being here. Next week, Pastor John will be continuing our study of First Peter. You know, we've been praying for John as he and Kay have been traveling, and the Lord has answered our prayer by bringing them safely back so they're here this morning, and that's wonderful. Yeah. And we are going to today finish our epic two-part series in the life of Elijah. Last week, if you remember, if you were here, we saw God prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one and only true God. And today, in the second part of the story, God's going to prove something else just as amazing. He is going to prove to you and to me his tender, tender loving care for each one of us. Anybody here in need of tender, loving care today? Amen. Yeah, me too. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we bow before you on this beautiful Southern California day, just so grateful that we have a place that you've provided for us to come to worship you, our Lord and our God. We thank you, Father, for bringing Pastor John and Kay home safely to us. And now as we open your word, Lord, we pray for your soft voice to whisper to our hearts. And for those of us who need comfort this morning, may we see your comfort in a new way that we have never seen it before. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, everybody has their Bible at this church. I shouldn't say if, when. Please turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 41, we're going to pick right up where we left off last week. So if you remember last week, we read about God's prophet named Elijah. And Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. King Ahab, the king of Israel, brought all the people to Mount Carmel hoping, expecting to see the Lord and Elijah humiliated in defeat. The rules of the contest were simple. Baal's prophets build an altar and they put an offering on it. Elijah put an offering on the Lord's altar and whichever God, Baal or Jehovah, whichever God would send down fire, that would be the one true God. The priests of Baal went first. Remember, Elijah gave them from early morning to about three in the afternoon. And these guys shouted, and they prayed, and they danced to get their God's attention. Pretty soon they got out their knives and they got out their spears and started making little fillets out of themselves as they tried to get the Lord, their God, to pay attention to them. Baal never answered. So then Elijah stepped forward and he told the prophets of Baal, why don't you take all the water that you have and just soak the Lord's altar. Make sure it is so wet it would be impossible to ignite. And then Elijah prayed one short prayer and before the, just as those words were leaving his mouth, fire fell from heaven and it consumed that soaked wood. It consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the rocks, the soil, and all the water that had spilled out into that trench. All the people, tens of thousands of people on Mount Carmel fell before the Lord to say, the Lord, He is God. And then Elijah commanded that all the false prophets of Baal be killed. Okay, how do you top a day like that? How do you top a day like that? 
when Elijah was standing there, after he prayed and God's fire fell to that altar, he was standing close enough to feel the heat of that holy flame. Wow. Elijah's passion was to rid Israel of idolatry. And he saw all of his countrymen and women fall on their faces, face in the dirt, praising God, the Lord, he is God. This was the culmination of events that took place three and a half years earlier. Three and a half years. When Elijah first told Ahab there would not be any dew or rain because of their idolatry. But now that the people repented, Elijah was ready to pray to bring the rain back in the drought for the people he loved so much. Okay, that's what Elijah was doing. Let's turn our attention to the other key figure in our story, King, King Ahab. How do you think he was feeling about all of this? King Ahab, if you remember, he worshipped Baal. He had the losing team. And Baal was, you know, humiliated in front of the people. And while Elijah was enjoying that thrill of victory, Ahab was over there suffering that agony of defeat. The Bible doesn't say this. I'm just imagining that his royal entourage at that moment was giving him a lot of space. I bet you nobody wanted to get in here. Don't talk to the king right now. But somebody wanted to talk to the king. Elijah did. As soon as all those prophets were slain, Elijah went straight to King Ahab. And don't you imagine when King Ahab saw Elijah coming, that Elijah was the last person on earth king wanted to hear from at that moment? Let's read in our Bibles, verse 41, chapter 18. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. For the first time in their relationship, Elijah actually brought good news to the king. He said, King, go get your picnic basket. Time to eat, time to drink, time to celebrate. The drought is over. If you'll turn back to chapter 17, uh, turn back one chapter, verse 1. We read this last week, but let's remind ourselves of the first meeting with Elijah and King Ahab. 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And the rain had stopped, just as he said it would, for three and a half years. And now he was ready to give his word that the rain would return that very day. Turn back to chapter 18, verse 41. Let's look at his words again. He said to the king, Go eat and drink, for there is a sound of a heavy rain. What sound was Elijah hearing? We're going to see in, the mo in a moment the skies were clear. Not a cloud in the sky. And Elijah's standing there saying, Go, celebrate, the drought's over. I, I hear the sound of a heavy rain. What sound was he hearing? Elijah was listening through the ears of faith. Elijah trusted God to always keep his word. Verse 42, so Ahab, again, followed Elijah's advice. Ahab went off to eat and drink. I imagine Ahab was good at both of those things. Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. This is the posture of humble submission. You know what? There's a temptation sometimes when the Lord does great things for us to want to take credit for it. But Elijah didn't go off to celebrate with the king. Elijah could have waded into that crowd. I mean, he was a hero right now. He could have gotten the star treatment. They could have hoisted him up on their shoulders and 
danced him around, but no, he went off to pray alone. A short time ago, Elijah stood on that mountain. He stood tall as God's ambassador, challenging the people to worship the one true God. And now he went alone to bow down before God as the people's intercessor, to beg God on their behalf to bring back the rain they so desperately needed. So let's understand this. It's important to us. When Elijah told the king that the drought was over, there was not a cloud in the sky. As Elijah climbed the mountain to pray for rain, the skies were clear. And as Elijah bent low before the Lord, the skies were clear. Sometimes when we pray, we cannot see an answer on the horizon. We look, nothing there. We want to pray, we try to pray, but we look up and we can't see any possible solution coming our way. Times like that, it's easy to give up. Not Elijah. Verse 43. Go and look toward the sea, Elijah told his servant. And the servant went up and looked. There is nothing there, the servant said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Okay, let's think about this. Earlier that day, Elijah prayed one short prayer and just as the words were leaving his mouth and he was praying for fire, fire fell from the sky instantly. This time he bowed low before the Lord. He prayed for rain. Nothing. No answer. Is rain harder for God to manufacture than fire? Why the delay? Why did God wait? Why make him look seven times? The shortest and best answer is because he is the Lord. And he always answers our prayer according to his perfect timing and perfect will. And Elijah was comfortable with that. You you see no sign in Elijah that he was worried. He sent the servant to look because Elijah just wanted to keep his head down in prayer in confidence in the Lord greatest way for you and I to live is to pray and wait on the Lord. But Elijah sent the servant to look seven times, and the Bible recorded that for us, seven times. And often in the, in the Bible, the number seven is identified with the finished and complete work of the Lord. The number seven appears over 700 times in Scripture. We have to be careful to always attach a symbolic meaning to it, because sometimes the seven is just a seven. But in this case, it's clear that God is communicating the idea that he accomplished everything he intended to accomplish with the drought, and now he, not Elijah, he was going to end it as he had promised. Bottom line for us is when we pray, we can be confident just like Elijah was. Whatever you're asking for, God will answer it at the perfect time in his perfect way. So the seventh time the servant checked the sky, he came back and reported, uh, hey, Master, there's a puny, stinky little cloud, no bigger than my fist, saw that. And immediately, Elijah announced the storm was here. For all of us who live in Southern California, this passage should make perfect sense. What do our weathermen do every time they see even the slightest chance of rain? Right? Storm watch graphics, right? Storm watch. So we should totally understand this. We don't need a commentary to help us with this one. Elijah saw that there was one tiny little cloud coming and he put everybody on storm watch. 
He said, go tell Ahab, get that chariot hooked up, get down the mountain before the rain stops you. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Okay, so as the king is preparing his chariot, he looked up in the sky and saw something he hasn't seen for three and a half years. He saw black clouds gathering quickly. Pretty soon, those big flowing robes he probably wore were whipping and blowing in the wind as this gust came up as that storm front arrived. And then, big drops of rain began to fall. They have not seen a raindrop in three and a half years. Punk, 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 hitting his chariot. Punk, 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 hitting big drops of rain, hitting that dusty, dry ground that hasn't seen rain or dew for three and a half years. Have you ever been in the desert when a rainstorm hits? I was filming a commercial in a dry lake bed one time, and we could hear and smell the rain before we saw it. And then all of a sudden this wall of rain is coming, and it looked to us like the sand was jumping up into the air as big drops hit the sand like bullets. So I imagine this is what King Ahab saw as he rode off to Jezreel, his winter capital. Now look at verse 46. This is fun. Then the power of the Lord came over Elijah, And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is about a 15 to 25 mile run. He outran a chariot for 15 to 25 miles. The Bible doesn't tell us why God wanted to get his prophet down the mountain in a hurry. Maybe he wanted to keep Elijah dry. Or, you know, kings in that day had a runner often go before them. Maybe God wanted Elijah to provide that service. So the king Ahab would have to watch God's prophet lead him all the way home? The Bible doesn't say that. That's not noteworthy. It's just me thinking. But when the power of the Lord came over Elijah and suddenly he could run like that, wouldn't you love to know what that felt like? I wish the Bible described it. I mean, did his hairs on his arms stand on end? I mean, did he feel like tingling? Did he feel like charges of energy going through his muscles? Did his skin glow? just would love to know what that was like. Well, chapter 18 ends with Elijah's victory lap in the rain. And then chapter 19 begins with a storm brewing of a very different kind. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. I sort of feel sorry for Ahab here. I know he's not a sympathetic character, but the queen did not come to the showdown. She was back at the palace. When she looked out her palace window and saw rain, they have not seen rain for three and a half years. She had to figure that her dear prophets of Baal defeated Elijah, humiliated the Lord. Elijah was now dead, and Baal was back in business. We saw last week that Baal is the storm god. So when that storm hit, she thought, my man's back. Right about now, Ahab pulled his chariot into the driveway. And maybe the queen came running out and threw her arms around her king and gave him a celebratory kiss. (sighs) But then the king had to break the bad news to his wife. Uh, Honey? Jezzy, darling? Um, You know that uh, contest I agreed to do with Elijah on the mountain? With the prophets that you love and you support? didn't go exactly like we thought it would go. Um, 
In fact, uh, Elijah kind of killed every single one of them. But other than that, did you notice the drought's over? What's for dinner? Poor guy. How did the queen take the news that her precious priests were all dead? Verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, meaning one of the dead priests. May the gods deal with me. Well, Jezebel missed the whole point of the contest. She was still in her idol worship. And she put Elijah on notice. Elijah, you might have won this contest. You're not going to win the war. I'm in charge here. You are a dead man. The queen was vicious and vindictive. She vowed to kill Elijah within 24 hours. <clears throat> okay. Elijah didn't care what the queen had to say, did he? He had faced angry King Ahab on a number of occasions, and he was never intimidated. Elijah stood and faced 450 prophets of Baal, and he didn't back down. Elijah stood in front of all of the countrymen covering Mount Carmel, and he never faltered. Elijah's not going to care what the queen says, is he? Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Sometimes it doesn't take very long to go from that mountaintop spiritual experience into the deepest, darkest valley of pain, fear, discouragement, and depression. This man that stood fearlessly for the Lord was now running for his life. Why? Because an unexpected messenger arrived with news he wasn't expecting. The queen's threat leveled Elijah like a blow to the head, took all the wind out of his sails, all of his confidence drained right out of his feet into the ground. The queen was not going to forsake her idols. All Elijah did on Mount Carmel is strengthen her resolve to rid Israel of any prophet of the Lord, starting with him. Elijah became a discouraged and broken man. If bad news can break a man like Elijah, we are foolish if we think it couldn't happen to one of us. We are all vulnerable to fear, worry, panic. Elijah left town. He ran away. Think about this with me. Don't you think that was the queen's plan all along? I don't think she ever intended to kill him. I think she wanted to scare him off. If she wanted to kill him, she could have sent an assassin to his door, not a messenger. I think Queen Jezebel feared what would happen if this now popular prophet Elijah suddenly showed up dead the day after the big victory on Mount Carmel. So she thought, maybe I can scare him out of town. And her plan worked perfectly. Elijah's departure gave Queen Jezebel two victories. 
First, it stopped Elijah's influence over the people. And second, it broke Elijah's spirit, so he no longer spoke out for God. Jezebel was Elijah's enemy. You and I have an enemy, the devil, Satan. And he wants to scare us away too. Please believe that. He would like to get you out of town, so to speak, to get you away from your ministry, get you away from this church, get you away from anything where you are being effective for God. Well, what would scare us away? Probably not a threat from a queen. Maybe discouragement would scare us away. Maybe criticism. Maybe attention going to somebody else and not to, to one of us. Maybe we don't see the results we had hoped. Maybe we just kind of hit a plateau and we don't know where we're going to go next. Probably the biggest thing that can scare us away is change. Change. We run away. We need to think. If we want to serve the Lord, what will running away accomplish? Elijah's trip from Jezreel to Beersheba is about 80 to 100 miles. So off, there he goes again. He, get, he got around. He left Israel, so he left the queen's jurisdiction. He went south into Judah. <clears throat> then he went to the southernmost part of that territory. He didn't feel safe there, so he left his servant behind, and he went a day's journey into the wilderness. Most likely he left his servant behind because I think Elijah just wanted to be alone. I think we can relate to that. By going so south into that territory, you know where Elijah went? He went right into the wilderness of Sinai, right where Moses and the children of Israel wandered. Look at verse 4 again. After a day's journey, Elijah came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. We all, every single one of us, have a breaking point. Even the strongest of us. And that breaking point comes when we lose track of God. And our circumstances, as real as they are, suddenly loom up so big they are giants that are going to crush us. This is what Elijah was experiencing. Why was Elijah so discouraged? Well, he wanted to end idol worship in Israel, but now he was afraid all he did was strengthen the queen's resolve and made her more dangerous and determined than ever. He thought he would always stand boldly for the Lord, and here he was running away. Kind of reminds us of the Apostle Peter, doesn't it? When he denied Christ. Elijah wanted to see spiritual revival in his country and now he realized that's not going to happen and he had been no more successful than any of his ancestors who also failed to turn Israel back to their God. So Elijah asked God to take his life. You know who else in the Bible prayed a prayer like that? Job prayed to end his life. So did Moses. So did the prophet Jeremiah. Ministry takes a heavy, heavy toll on a person. You wonderful men and women of God that serve here in this church, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the greatest man or woman of God can be broken by discouragement. That's why we have to pray for each other. We must pray for each other and never stop praying for each other. So Elijah came to a broom bush. This is a shrub, but it looks like a small tree with weeping branches. 
And he crawled under that bush and he sat in the shade and he began to pray. I imagine tears <clears throat> spilled from his eyes. I imagine those tears drew lines down his dirty, dusty face. I imagine his voice was dry, barely above a whisper. His throat was choked with emotion as he hung his head and said, I've had enough. Lord, take my life. Elijah wanted to go to his eternal rest and be with the Lord. That's what he longed for. Have you ever felt broken and alone? There's no other pain like that. In his despair, Elijah prayed for death to come. And in his prayer, we can learn something this morning that will change our lives from this day forward. Change how we live, change how we pray. I'm sorry to make that sound so dramatic. It's not a pulpit trick. It's the truth. This passage, as I started studying it a month or so ago, has absolutely changed how I think and how I pray and how I live. It's clarified something for me. I've always sort of understood at a distance, but never understood it as clearly as Elijah made it clear to me. And here it is. When we pray, our loving God always gives us the right thing, even when we ask for the wrong thing. Elijah prayed for God to take his life. He really and truly, sincerely wanted to die. But God said, no, Elijah, I'm not going to take your life. I have something better for you. Do you know how Elijah eventually died? He didn't. Yeah. He's one of the few men in the Bible to never die. Let me read to you from 2 Kings 2.11. As Elijah and Elisha were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind Oh my gosh, don't you want to go like that? Oh my gosh, what does it feel like to jump onto a chariot of fire and surf a whirlwind to heaven? Cowabunga! Man, what a way to go. That was his future. That was the future God had for him. That is why God said no to his request to die alone and defeated in the desert. So here's the truth about God in our prayers. We never need to fear a no answer from the Lord because the Lord only says no when he has something better for us. We may, we may not be able to see that better thing. I promise you, Elijah under that bush could not see his future at that moment. So yeah, we may be praying and God saying no and that may hurt for a time, but we have to understand. God only says no to the lesser thing so he can say yes later to the better thing. Every time. Do you think Elijah was grateful a little later on that God didn't answer his prayer and take his life? After Elijah prayed to the Lord, he basically passed out from exhaustion. Look at verse 5. Then Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Elijah looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. Elijah ate and drank and then lay down again. Last week, if you remember, we saw the Lord send ravens to provide bread and, and meat twice a day to Elijah. Well, this time, instead of ravens, the Lord used an angelic food delivery service. Just as, just as effective. Let's read on. Verse 7. 
Elijah fell back asleep, right? Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So Elijah got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. We need to see this. Elijah ran into the wilderness to hide from Jezebel. He might have hid from Jezebel, but he wasn't hiding from the Lord. God knew where he was every step of the way. And now the Lord was preparing Elijah to go on this journey that would retrace the steps of Moses through the wilderness to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is also called Mount Sinai. This is the place where Moses heard the burning bush and the Lord speaking from the burning bush and Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai is where Moses received the Ten Commandments. So Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached the mountain of God. This is about a 200-mile trip. So let's do the math together. That would be about five miles a day. Five miles a day for Elijah. Elijah was a chariot racing cross-country runner. He could have traveled a lot faster. This could have been a 20-day trip or a much shorter trip if the destination was God's focus. But the destination wasn't God's focus. The journey was God's focus. If you're a goal-oriented person and you're always looking for the outcome, it's easy to miss the lessons that God is trying to teach us right now in the moment, on the journey, if we're always looking ahead. Sometimes we spend so much time with the future, we miss the beauty of being alive, being with the Lord right here, right now, in this moment. Right? Every second, every breath, every heartbeat is a gift from God. Every step we take with our Savior is precious. What's our rush? My favorite author, Dallas Willard, wrote, What is ever really accomplished by hurrying? I think of that, (laughs) I think of his question often. For me, I need to think about slowing down. So the Lord slowed Elijah down to give him time to recover. After 40 days, 40 nights, Elijah arrived at the mountain of God. Verse 9, there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? In Hebrew, this word translated a cave is better translated the cave. This was a specific place. Very likely the same cave or cleft in the rock where Moses stood when the Lord put him there. Let me read to you from Exodus 33:22. This is God talking to Moses. And God said, when my glory passes by, I will put you, Moses, in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Very likely, Elijah was led right to that same spot. This was sacred ground. Forty days ago, Elijah sat under that bush and he prayed that he might die. And now here he is on God's mountain listening to the voice of the Lord. God could have spoken to Elijah 40 days ago under that bush. Why did God wait? Why did God wait? I ask God why he waits all the time. And his answer here and his answer is always the same. It's because God allows time. He uses time to prepare us to hear him. Sometimes we're praying for something the Lord knows we're not ready to hear. We're not ready to accept. We're not ready to understand yet. So he uses time to prepare us, just like he did for Elijah. When God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? The question meant, what desire has brought you here? Please note something wonderful about our Lord. There's no rebuke here. He wasn't angry at Elijah for being broken and defeated. This question is full of tenderness, love, and patience. 
I have a verse. Can we put up the first Peter verse, please? <clears throat> About 900 years after God asked Elijah this question, the Apostle Peter wrote this. And by the way, I just need to tell you, I got this verse from Karen Thompson. She teaches our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders Old Testament history. She probably has to be the best Old Testament teacher in the church. And she sent me this verse, and I am grateful for it. First Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him because, why? He cares for you. God invited Elijah with that question, what are you doing here, Elijah? He was inviting Elijah to unburden himself, to unload all of his anxiety on God's shoulders. You know, our shoulders are not built to carry the weight of the world. That's why we get so devastated and run down. But God's shoulders can carry it just fine. So he asks us to lay our burdens onto him. I love quoting from Psalm 34. It's my favorite psalm. So there's a wonderful verse. I'll just read to you Psalm 34:18. It says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You ever crushed in spirit? The Lord's there to save. Let's see what, how Elijah answered the Lord. Elijah said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse, back to 1 Kings 19, verse 10. Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. God asked him to unburden his heart, and he did. He laid out all the facts that were before him. He had a problem here, though. Remember earlier on Mount Carmel, he was listening and looking through the eyes and ears of faith. He was no longer doing that. Now he was looking through his own vision, and he was telling the Lord what he saw. So this is the world according to Elijah, not according to the Lord. He said, I've given you everything I have. I've given you my best, and it's not good enough. I have failed you. But he hadn't failed. He told the Lord the people of Israel are too far gone to save. That's how he saw it. But the people of Israel were not too far gone to save. And Elijah thought he was the only prophet left. But there were many, many others that he did not know about yet. But God would soon tell him. Verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. In the Old Testament, these forces, wind, earthquake, fire are all signs of God's absolute power, judgment, and authority. God was showing himself, but God was not in any of those things for Elijah. Elijah didn't need judgment. He didn't need to know about God's authority. He already was totally on board with that. Elijah was in need of something else that he did not know about the Lord. Same thing you and I need to know about the Lord. So where was God? After the fire came a gentle whisper. Gentle whisper can be translated like this. It's the voice of gentle silence. God spoke in the voice of gentle silence. 
Wouldn't you love to hear what that sounded like? After all that noise of the wind and the shattering rocks and the earthquake and the fire came a dead calm, absolute silence. And in the silence, you could hear the silent voice of the Lord speak. Wow, I'd love to hear that. You know what the voice of gentle silence is? Peace. Absolute. Total peace. That's what Elijah needed. Maybe you need peace this morning. In silence, the Lord spoke to Elijah in a voice only Elijah could hear. And he used a voice that was so quiet, Elijah had to listen. He had to be standing right up close so he could hear. That's what that 40-day journey was all about. You may be on a 40-day journey. Maybe you're at the end of a 40-day journey or just setting out. Verse 13, when Elijah heard the whisper of God, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the, mountain of the, at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? This is the second time the Lord asked this tender question. This is the second time God invited Elijah to cast all of his worries on him. Verse 14, Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Wow. Why did Elijah repeat his answer to God? Same answer he gave before. The only conclusion we can make It's the first time when Elijah answered God and cast all his anxiety upon him, he took them all back. You know, do you ever do that? I think sometimes we need a couple of attempts to do that with the Lord. We go before the Lord to pray and we give the Lord our burden and after we finish praying, we stand back up, we stuff it back into our pockets, we put it back on our backs and off we go. Maybe we left a little bit of it behind, but we're carrying most of it still. Sometimes we need to go back again and again. Elijah needed to go back one more time until he could finally let go. Times like that, I've learned to pray this prayer. I've learned this, I learned this from you, Mom. Taught me to pray, Father, I can't let go of this. Please take it from me. So Elijah was going through tough times. They were real circumstances. The condition of the people of Israel, their faith was lousy. Jezebel was killing everybody. He had a price on his head. But we need to note that Elijah added to his pain, he added to his depression, he added to his difficulty by making conclusions not based on faith or the word of God. He was making conclusions from his own mind, his own imagination. When we have troubles and worries and we can't see the Lord's work, it's so easy for us to say, well, wow, this is going to end badly. Oh, I see where this is going. This is a disaster. There's no way out of this. I failed. Chuck Swindoll says that obstacles are the things we see when we take our eyes off the goal. When we take our eyes off the Lord, everything's an obstacle. Everything we see is a roadblock or a dead end. So once again, Elijah cast all of his anxiety upon the Lord. And this time it must have stuck. He must have let go because now God was ready to answer his request. We'll close with this. Verse 15. All this journey, all of Elijah's questions, his spiritual need, now God was going to answer. Verse 15, the Lord said to Elijah, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Aram is uh, Syria today. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. 
and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maol to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. What does all of that mean? How does this answer Elijah's depression and confusion? In a very specific way. The Lord gave Isaiah, I mean Elijah exactly what he needed. A new focus and a new purpose. Elijah needed time to rest and recover and offload his burdens, and then he needed to get back to work. God had more for him to do. Look at the instructions. They're meaningful. God said, go back the way you came. This time when Elijah retraced those steps, don't you think Elijah was making a visual comparison between himself? He knew what condition he was in when he was heading to God. Now coming back, he was lighter. He left his burdens behind. He now had more strength in his step. He was looking forward. He wasn't looking back. Elijah was afraid of Queen Jezebel, remember? So the Lord said, go anoint Jehu king over Israel. That was probably a private ceremony, but it told Elijah, don't you worry about the king and queen. God's going to deal with them in due time. And he did. Elijah thought he failed to end idol worship in Israel, but by the t- he anointed Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. And by the time those three men died, Baal worship was barred in Israel. Elijah was exhausted from working alone, so God said, go anoint a helper and your successor. And Elijah thought he was the only true follower of God left, was was the only one left, and God said, you know, Elijah, you're off by 7,000. In other words, you missed it by a mile. 7,000 means there's a lot of people. A lot of people Elijah didn't even know about that God had already spoken to that were already his. You know, sometimes in our ministry and just in our lives, we can feel isolated. We can feel alone. We can't see God working. When things are failing, we think God isn't working. When things are succeeding, maybe we think God's working. And then we look out and we don't know how God's working in the world. God is always working. He's always working in my life and your life when things are good and when things are not so good. God is at work and we're foolish to think that he isn't doing miracles all over this church, all over this community, all over this country, and all over this world. So Elijah went back the way he came. And if you want to read the rest of Elijah's adventures, I highly recommend Read the last chapters of the First Kings. Read the first two chapters of Second Kings. And then turn to the New Testament because Elijah makes an appearance, yes, in the New Testament. Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah appears with Moses ministering to Jesus Christ when he was transfigured in front of the apostles. What a life. Okay, for us, what do we take away from this story of Elijah? There's a lot. But I think it boils down to this. Any one of us, any one of us can be overwhelmed by our circumstances. That does not mean you are weak. It means you're human. Just like Elijah was. When we feel we're at the end of our rope, God is right there. He's asking us in that still, quiet voice, what are you doing here? What need do you have? And God invites us to let go of that frayed rope that's slipping through our fingers and to take hold of his mighty hand instead, cast all of our anxieties upon him. Our great and loving God knows there's going to be times where we lose our confidence, 
There's going to be times where we lose our way. There's going to be times where we lose track of God. And there's going to be times when we lose our grip on his hand. But the great news from the word of God in those moments, God will never let go of us. Not ever. Do you believe that's true? If you do, let's find our courage in him this morning. Let's cast all of our anxiety upon him right now and leave it there. That change that's coming, that devastating news you're dealing with, that wrestling match you're having with God, the thing that you're afraid of, the thing that has you up at night, put it into his hand. Leave it in his care. So you and I, we can all go back the way we came to do the work. God has called us to do. Our prayer team is going to be up here to pray with you if you would like to pray about this or anything on your heart. We love to pray for you. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for knowing that we go through life and we can be so easily overwhelmed by the trials that come. Lord, thank you that you never lose track of us, even when we try to hide. Wherever we go, Lord, you are there. I pray for each one of us. Help us to let go of that rope we're clinging to so we can hold on to your hand instead. Help us to leave here today people that are unburdened, leaving our cares on your shoulders, not our own, so we can do the work you have given us to do. We thank you in the name that is above every name, our Lord Jesus Christ.